just a few, uh, few words. Um, the idea of this, this uh, event is part of a larger project that we are working with Lee Payne and several partners across Latin America. Um, what we are doing is trying to collect, analyze, and um, produce a policy briefing and policy analysis about corporate complicity in concepts of transitional justice. Um, part in, as part of this uh, large project, we are working, as Daniel mentioned, in a book that um, Sebastián, Karina Fernández, and Juan Pablo Bojoplaskis are editing. Um, part of, and in that, in that, uh, within that initiative, we are uh, building dialogues among the authors about the issue in Chile. Um, we will have Lee that she will mention and she will introduce the topic of corporate complicity and part of our work. And then we will have Sebastian, uh, Marcos, and, and Christian that they will talk about different dimensions of transitional justice and corporate complicity in Chile. Uh, Sebastian will try to work on the evolution of transitional justice and the different uh, flows, strong and weak points uh, in Chile and he will plug uh, business complicity in that, in that scenario. Then we, we will have uh, Marcos who will talk about much more about a conceptual discussion about what we mean by corporate complicity and to which kind of actor and how that could impact on accountability initiative. And lastly, we have uh, Christian who will try to give us like much more practical approach of what are the impacts of the complicity between state actors and corporate uh, actors in violation of human rights, and how that complicity have a, 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 an impact on their uh, on actual time. So, just um, as Daniel said, we have like 15 minutes, and then we will have a, a conversation with the audience. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so Guardian introduced. <coughs> Essentially, our part of this project, which is the global database on corporate complicity, we'll come back later if you have questions about how we define corporate complicity, all of that sort of uh, nuts and bolts thing, but I wanted to give you an overview first before we talk, uh, have the presenters speak about Chile in specific. So, with our sponsor, who happens to be here, <laughs> I don't know, when you come from Open Society Foundation, you might have to wear a mask so that people don't identify you uh, to ask for more money, since um, we'll be asking you for more money. <laughs> uh, anyway, Borislav, thank you for coming. Um, and this is nice to be able to present to Borislav uh, where we are in the project right now also. Uh, so far, the project formally has uh, four partners, the University of Oxford, which is the, the team that's here, Gabriel is involved in that, and Laura uh, Bernal Bermudez, who's in Colombia, CELS, uh, which is one of the, uh, probably the most prominent human rights organization in all of Latin America, uh, some might argue even in the world, um, and Andes, which Gabriel works for in Tucumán, that is uh, maybe the poorer, uh, younger cousin of ourselves. <laughs> and uh, we're also working with De Justicia in Colombia. So you can see that we look not just at uh, corporate complicity in dictatorships, but also in armed conflicts. Um, we have 
really four databases. Can you see this? Is this okay? Or am I in the way? You can see? Okay. Uh, four databases that don't totally fit together, so we're working with, some, with them separately, but this is to give you an overview of, of what we are gathering data on. Um, most of you know that the beginning of transitional justice is really with the Nuremberg trials after the Holocaust. And what most of you also probably know is that part of those trials and then subsequent trials uh, for the Nazi violations were business cases. So we are surprisingly, shockingly, nobody has tracked those cases. We cannot find a database of those cases. So I'm working with a couple of law students to track the outcomes of those cases that were brought. And so far, uh, we have about 80 um, different companies, um, uh, actually different individuals at companies who were brought forward on those uh, cases. And we're analyzing, it's very hard to find um, uh, outcomes partly because many of them settled and they were sealed. Those settlements were sealed. So we're trying to um, see if through uh, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, we can get information on those settlements. Then we did a project on truth commissions, looking at all the truth commissions in the world, not just the Latin American ones, the final reports, and whether they said anything about corporate complicity. And we found, which I'll present to you in a minute, 56% of those uh, truth commissions, final reports, not only mention corporate complicity, but name names of companies and the type of activity that they were involved in. This is something that's not known. Right? Not one mandate for the truth commissions, the national truth commissions mention corporate complicity in the mandate, and yet more than half of them investigated uh, businesses for their complicity. And the Chilean one, uh, the Chilean two, are, uh, are clear in that case. Um, then we looked at judicial actions, and that involved looking at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, which cases they had gathered information of, and then replicating some of the methodology used by the BHRRC, which is a London-based NGO, uh, to try and find other cases uh, that weren't mentioned in the BHRRC data. Um, but our biggest set of cases, as you can see from the pie chart, are the justice and peace <coughs> law cases. The special prosecution in Colombia, we went through the final decisions of the judges, so not the versiones libres, or the testimonies made by the paramilitaries in the special prosecution, but the final decisions and, and which companies were named for what activities in those, uh, in those cases. Um, and we're currently working with De Justicia on those, um, on those justice and peace cases. So, Gabriel already mentioned the objectives of the project, so I have them up here. Um, you can come back and ask us more about that in the end, but in the interest of time, I'll just move right into some of the data. I already mentioned that 56% of the final reports for the Truth Commissions um, mention corporate complicity and name names of companies. This is of the list of the, of the, uh, the over half of those, the 22 Truth Commissions that mention corporate complicity. The majority are in Latin America. Um, 
And perhaps that isn't surprising because the majority of the truth commissions are in Latin America. The first truth commissions are in Latin America. But it is why I think talking about Chile uh, is of particular interest because of the role that Latin America played in using some kind of transitional justice mechanism in its accountability process. If you look at this chart, you can see how uh, the, the regional distribution of judicial actions is also primarily in Latin America if we consider domestic prosecutions. Foreign civil prosecutions is that very high, not very visible on the screen because it's yellow instead of green the way it is on the screen, uh, is, are the African cases that were in the alien torts statute in the U.S. Um, and most of those settled or are still pending. So Latin America, is, uh, as we will see, is also um, noteworthy for having more outcomes of these cases than other parts of the world. So when we move specifically to Chile, we, can, we find 23 total cases mentioned in the Judicial Action and in the Truth Commission database. In the Truth Commissions, um, there are 16, so most of them are in the, in the truth, truth Commissions, with the Rettig Commission, the first one, naming 14 economic actors. I've listed them there um, for a variety of crimes, um, sometimes very general forms of participation in repression, and uh, in other cases, the actual creation of detention centers on site in the companies. We have two of those cases in Reddick and the two cases in, uh, also in the uh, Valak Commission <coughs> that followed. Um, we have also judicial action in Chile. It's not the highest in Latin America, but it comes third. Um, after Colombia and Argentina in terms of initiating judicial action. In outcome, we have only one conviction in the case of Chile and six pending cases. Um, the highest, um, actually I think this is beginning to change in our data because you know these convictions are happening uh, fairly frequent, well not fairly frequently, but enough that we have to keep the database up to date. So I think actually Colombia has the highest number of convictions now uh, than Argentina when we put together this, uh, this graph. Here are the judicial action cases in Chile. As you can see, the majority were in the case of Paine. Are, are one of you going to speak about Paine? Okay. Uh, do one of you want to speak about <laughs> But there were, there have been six different uh, individual cases for the, um, the Paine was an, is in a rural area outside of Santiago, and the with the agrarian reform program of Salvador Allende, 1970 to 73, the community of Paine. I always feel like I'm somehow related to this, even though I'm E griega instead of E latina. But um, that, they, that they had received particular land rights, but after the coup, that community was very severely repressed. And so these cases are for the repression that involved landholders 
and the military in the post-coup uh, 1973 um, uh, repression of the rural area. And there's an incredible memorial of Baine, if you want to Google it, to see how the community has involved um, in not just judicial action processes, but also memorialization of the violation that took place at Paine. There's one conviction from the Paine case. There was one dismissal. That dismissal is under appeal, and so it's still pending. So this is the, this is the one conviction is from Paine, and the other six are really still, um, <coughs> sorry, the other five are still pending. And then the case of Celulosa, is uh, um, there's been an expose by journalists of both Paine and the Celulosa case, um, and it is also still um, pending. Okay, that's all I really want to do to sort of <coughs> situate the Chile case within our broader project. Um, we can just move now right into your presentations, Perfect. unless you have questions. <laughs> we won't let them ask questions, but you know, we can ask them later. Okay, of course. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee. Um, well, I'll, I'll be talking about um, a specific form of relation uh, between economic accomplices and, and, and the violation of human rights, which is uh, um, somehow um, exposed in the in a report made in 1978 by Antonio Cassese, uh, who actually uh, revealed the relation between economic aid and uh, human rights violations in the case of Chile. But before getting in depth into into that analysis, um, I would like firstly to highlight uh, the importance of the book that we are collectively writing. Um, as you may know, the transition to democracy in Chile has uh, been studied as a successful, somehow successful example. Uh, but despite of, <coughs> of that uh, success, there are important steps that has to be, I mean, that, that has to be undertaken in the country. There is still much to do. I will give you some examples of these loopholes that we have in, in our transitional justice system. First of all, the military jurisdiction and the amnesty law are still present in our jurisdiction. Um, both of them have made some progress in the last couple of years, but there's still much to do. Um, for, and in terms of amnesty law, it's true that the tribunals have not been applying it since 1998 onwards, but they have been applied a, 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 a specific institution, which is called the Prescripción Gradual, which is actually a specific term of, of limitation um, that has given in some cases of human rights violations, uh, which specifically takes into consideration the timing between uh, uh, the acts were committed and the date of the decision uh, granting benefits for, for uh, in the conviction. And in terms of military jurisdiction, it is true that last year there has been a modification into, into the law. A new law has been passed uh, on where uh, when a civilian is affected by the police or the, or the army, um, they cannot be brought to the military jurisdiction, but the, the jurisdiction is still there now. So we still have a jurisdiction, uh, uh, sorry, a military jurisdiction in times of peace, contravening somehow the decision in the case of Palamara uh, made by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. That's one example. The other example is that the information actually of the truth commissions, uh, uh, both the Balich and the Rettig commissions, uh, are reserved, and they, uh, I mean the, the final report is over there, but the information of the testimonies uh, are reserved, and they are reserved for a 50 years period, um, creating obviously clear barriers in, ter in terms of the ideals of truth and, 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 and memory. 
but also in terms of reparations, because we know that the information is over there, but nobody nobody can u actually use it in order to 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 prosecute the responsibles uh, the responsibles of, of the criminal acts. Uh, despite of, 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 of this uh, limitation, uh, we must highlight that actually in January of this year, a victim, uh, uh, which is part of the Valak Commission, asked the National Institute of Human Rights, who are the, the ones who, who contain the, all this information, to, to reveal her case. Uh, the, Institute of Human, uh, the National Institute of Human Rights refused to give her the information. Nevertheless, the Santiago Court of Appeal um, ended up granting her the full information of the case, opening, I think, a window of opportunities to other victims in order to, 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 to gain information about their cases. Um, and a third example is that the, I mean, the political and democratic system generated during Pinochet's constitution is still prevalent uh, or untouched, uh, if you want to say, in nowadays. Though the election system, for example, has changed and we don't have anymore the binominal system, and we will see what happens actually in the next elections, uh, we still can observe definitely a dependence between the policies and laws implemented during uh, Pinochet's dictatorship and, and the current legal system. Within this context is that we must highlight uh, um, one of the main limitations, not just of the Chilean transitional justice now, but of others as well, which is that um, it has been focused mainly on state actors um, and avoiding to look um, the at the potential role and responsibility of non-state actors. Um, as you may know, of course, Chile is not exclusive in this sense. There's a general tendency uh, to establish responsibilities on state actors, uh, leaving the responsibility uh, of companies and individuals, uh, individuals that are or were benefited, for example, by authoritarian regimes out, outside the transitional justice radar. Um, this situation, uh, I mean, hopefully this situation has started to change in the last years. Uh, at the regional context, we have already seen how, for example, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia have given important steps in, in, in this sense. Um, and also how the international literature has started to be concerned about these issues. Nevertheless, uh, the national literature in Chile is still scarce, in, uh, I'll say, in in this sense, and more importantly, there's no political uh, will in order to prosecute the economic accomplishments uh, of, uh, of the dictatorship. In this sense, I think that through legal, economic, political, uh, historical, and institutional arguments, the, the book will try to fill this gap um, by analyzing different uh, case studies. Uh, we have the case study of El Mercurio, one of the most important newspapers in, in, in the country, the case of uh, Colonia Dignidad, and the case of Celulo, not Celulos Arauco, but Pesquera Arauco, um, um, in, in the book, and also generating, hopefully, a theoretical framework in order to analyze uh, uh, the responsibility of non-state actors in the specific case of, of Chile. So that's, that's the aim of the book. Uh, uh, and why is because we think uh, that in order to achieve uh, the basic objectives of uh, justice, memory, uh, reparation, and prevention, it is key to put a focus, uh, we, we argue that, uh, on the economic accomplishments of the dictatorship. Firstly, because we think that uh, it's basic to say that those that contributed to actually the violation of human rights uh, must be responsible for their actions. Secondly, because that responsibility should allow, allow to prevent future violations. Thirdly, because by demonstrating whom these accomplishments had been, uh, we aim to uh, contribute uh, to complete the narrative of the recent Chilean history. Uh, and fourthly, because we think that ignoring uh, the economic factors that actually allowed the actions of, criminal, of a criminal regime and leaving them, them these acts in impunity generates definitely the risk of impeding and inclusive democratic measures in, in the future. 
So it's in this context of transitional justice, um, uh, a current context of transitional justice in Chile that I want to highlight, which one has been like the main contributions made by Antonio Cassese in 1978, uh, and, and, and part of the, his still pendant complaints. Uh, first, a little bit of context, but in 1975, uh, the Subcommittee on Human Rights, the United Nations Subcommittee on Human Rights, created the ad hoc working group to study the violations, the current violations of human rights that were occurring <coughs> in Chile, and that had to do, obviously, with the international concern of the violations of human rights in Chile. And, uh, and uh, immediately, the ad hoc working group uh, raised uh, the attention to the international community about the potential uh, link in between the economic aid that they were giving, I mean, the international community, with the atrocities committed at the lo local level uh, in Chile. And so, uh, the ad hoc working group uh, um, ordered the study of this relation to Antonio Cassese. Um, the report entrusted to Cassese is, as far as we know at least, uh, uh, the first study in the field that was devoted actually to study the relation in between uh, uh, international economic cooperation and the assistance and the violations of human rights. Uh, but despite of this novelty, it didn't have the influence or impact that it was supposed at the local level. Uh, just two examples of this lack of influence. Uh, first of all, uh, the report has been scarcely elaborated and cited by the, the by national and international doctrine. And secondly, it was not used uh, as part of the transition to justice in uh, transitional justice in Chile. This situation will maybe explained obviously by the fact that Cassese was able actually to. To, to highlight the relationship between econ international economic aid and the violation of human rights at the local level. So probably there will be there were some uh, blockages from powerful groups. What is less understandable is that actually academics or NGOs didn't, uh, um, uh, didn't track this report. So what we want to do in this book is to contribute by filling this gap again, um, both by publishing a Spanish uh, version of Cassese's report, summary report and also by highlighting his main contributions and pending complaints. Um, in terms of contribution, it must be said that, um, I mean, in spite of the limitations that Cassese had at that time, no? that the, I mean, Pinochet's dictatorship didn't allow him to actually enter the, the country, he was able to, to do a detailed analysis of, of the Chilean economy, uh, economic context. Um, according to Cassese, there were like three, uh, or the, Actually, the, the, the economic concerns of the dictatorship were threefold. First of all, to, to reduce or to solve the problem of uh, chronic inflation. Secondly, to reduce the strong instability of the balance of payments. And thirdly, to stimulate the reactivation of the economy. Cassese uh, says, well, the, the, I mean, those aims were com uh, somehow uh, achieved, at least in, in terms of, of the reduction of inflation and, 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 and in, in terms of improving the balance of payments. However, he argued that in order to achieve those goals, it was really important uh, to, to report to the external debt no? uh, with a significant increase in the debt with private entities and multilateral funds. Uh, um, and while it, it improved the macroeconomic level of, of, the, Chile, of the Chilean uh, economy, sorry, it resulted also in a clear disadvantage for specific groups, uh, such as employees or, or national uh, companies, uh, 
most of them who went into bankruptcy. So the combination of these factors led to an increase in extreme poverty, actually, in 1978 in, in the country, and a constant situation of violation of economic, social, and cultural rights uh, uh, at, at that point. Actually, it's really interesting to, to analyze how Cassese in, in 1978 was able to uh, anticipate the problems that are now the, the flag of a struggle, if you want to say like that, of social movements, uh, such as, for example, uh, the, re the reduction in the public funds to finance universities, the problem of selection and tendency towards the privatization of school education, or the problem of uh, privatization of uh, health services. Um, also, he, 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 he detail, uh, he makes a really good detail of the social consequences uh, generated by the economic policies implemented by Pinochet. Uh, for example, he argues, or he, he makes really good connections between the privatization of uh, companies made by Corfo uh, and the status of foreign, di uh, foreign direct investment and how they have ended up reducing the field of protection of human rights, uh, uh, obviously uh, harming the most vulnerable groups in, in, in the country. Uh, one, okay. One of the examples uh, that will be explained by by, by Christian in, in, in this sense is how uh, they have developed a, a form of predatory extractivism that is currently existent in in in, in the country. Um, this detailed analysis also make uh, makes Cassese uh, uh, stress that or point out the incapacity of foreign aid to actually uh, contribute to the country's development. Uh, here he distinguished at least two forms of, 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 of economic aid. No? First, there was economic aid who, who sought directly to foment and strengthen the military dictatorship, such as the one given by the United States before the Carter administration. Um, in this case, he says the contribution to human rights violation is direct, actually. And there's other economic aid that had the intention, actually, to collaborate with the development of the country, such as those given by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, or uh, the UN Development Program, that ended up actually generating the opposite effects, so uh, generating human rights violations. Uh, um, in this sense, uh, I mean, Cassese puts in real, in real evidence that the uh, that important part of these funds given by international uh, economic aid uh, were used actually to finance military equipment, for example, or actually to pay the external debt. The question then is if uh, the financing organizations should be responsible actually uh, for the for human rights violations committed, even if they are <coughs> uh, their passive role in such uh, violations. We believe at least that there should be a criminal and civil responsibilities of, of those who participated in financing the atrocities, both direct or, or indirect, by the dictatorship. Uh, actually, because it's evident, or Cassese makes it evident, it, it, it evident the, the relationship between both of them. Um, and while we think that the, the political will at the local level is inexistent, we firmly believe that at least the international community could uh, do something in order to pursue those responsibilities, at least of those international organizations. Eh? It will be interesting, for example, to, to see if their request of information to, to, to these organizations uh, could uh, end up in pursuit the responsibility of organizations such as, again, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and so on. Just to finish, another pending challenge lies in the lack of political will to actually change uh, the current situation of economic, social, and cultural rights in, in, in the country. Um, most of them are still rooted in the ideas and policies developed during the dictatorship, uh, which has actually produced patterns of human rights violations that we can see nowadays. Uh, again, Christian will explain this, no? but uh, 
let's see how, for example, the political uh, uh, constitution of 1980s, uh, the Water Code of 1981, the Electric Transmission Law of 1982, or the Water Code of 1983 have actually created a legal framework to protect uh, uh, extractive investment uh, for, uh, uh, that have actually continued, as Christian will explain, to uh, violate human rights. In conclusion, it must be said that the report was forgotten. Uh, the Chilean transitional justice missed an important opportunity to follow on, up on, for example, the relation between the privatization of companies on, and the violation of human rights or the responsibility of, fin of financing institutions in supporting the criminal re regime. So we hope that actually the contributions regarding the Cassese report made in this book may start to close those policy and theoretical gaps existing in Chile, allowing to create the impact that both the report and the victims de deserve in this case. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Sebastian. Okay, um, so um, the presentation is based on a draft of a book chapter that is, will be part of that volume, and I'm co-authoring it with uh, Tomás Andurraga, who sadly couldn't make it today. And Tomás Andurraga, in case you don't know him, he's, um, he has released a book not long ago on the cultural circuits of capitalism and how uh, in Chile and Argentina, and particularly during the dictatorships, that there were divergent parts in how in, in how capitalism became embedded in the in the political elites, uh, and the dis and like particular regimes of justification based on the work of uh, Louis Boltonsky in, in in sociology in particular, on how uh, on how these uh, elites linked a certain discourse of society with a with a particular. Uh, institutional, polit political, and economic model. So in that context, our task was basically to think of uh, the concept of complicity with the dictatorship for the case of, ex of experts and intellectuals. And in particular, uh, my own work is based is on think tanks and uh, on the role of economists and experts on, from the social sciences in the, in the dictatorship of Pinochet. And that has uh, has many things that we need to sort of cover. The first one is the particular the particular role of social sciences in Chile. Second, the period in which uh, the state of social sciences at that particular moment. And third, the international connections that they that these social scientists have. And fourth, the playing field in which uh, they're working on. And but and to be sure, the the issue of what does complicity mean when you're talking about intellectuals in a sense, in the sense of people who are first uh, occupying the, the, the knowledge infrastructure, if you will, of the country, universities, and second, they are populating the public debate. What does it mean exactly to be accomplice in that context? So my own background is in the sociology of intellectuals, and the pragmatic case there is the Vichy Republic in France. Um, there, of course, it's, there's many differences with Chile, but it's an interesting comparison, because uh, after after the end of the Second World War, intellectuals who were sympathizers of the fascist regime, like Basiak, were, uh, had to go through public trials, and some of them actually were executed as collaborators and actually as the, in, in France, actually, the, the uh, judges that said actually they had, actually had, a, they had a responsibility, although they, had, they were not directly linked to any human rights violation, they, they were responsible for the justification of them. Okay, so that's uh, so yeah, that that is the most paradigmatic case study. And the second thing is that in 
in the sociology of knowledge generally, you tend to see that uh, the, there's generally the hypothesis that uh, countries where there's not an exp the, where the higher education hasn't expanded yet, uh, there's more of an that, that means that intellectuals tend to have more of an epistemic authority. So actually, the if you have if you have a vacated uh, if you have a vacated um, public debate, basically there's little there's little contestation for little uh, little space for contestation to happen. Actually, so it's, there's more of a power to uh, there's more of a power to be had there, so to speak. So in that sense, we had we with Thomas we thought of doing an analytical exercise with men, thinking about two things. First of all, what is the type of crime that we are accusing these intellectuals of? And there, we thought of three categories. First one is, of course, the first crime, of course, of the dictatorship is actually the end of uh, sort of the coup d'etat, which ends uh, what we call the, the the breakdown of the democratic the democratic regime before the, before the coup d'etat. So as the first one, the justification of the coup d'etat, something that was necessary, or uh, yeah, something that as, as something that was necessary, so the break of the yeah, of, of these rule of law, so to speak. The second one is the um, justification of human rights violations, uh, which although uh, there are intellectuals who actually, or people who are in the public domain did justify them, uh, they tend to be not necessarily the majority. And then the third one, which is the most thorny one, I guess, is the justification of a political and economic model that has its origins outside of democracy. And there, the situation gets a bit more phony. And there, between these three categories of crime, if you will, uh, you have actors that you could classify as active and passive. So we thought first that the th that distinction between active and passive was actually quite complicated and quite thorny. Because then, for instance, would you say that would one say that someone who is in favor of uh, of the mo of Milton Friedman theory of uh, how one should structure the economy uh, is necessarily an accomplice? Not really. It's a bit, it's a bit more difficult, more thorny. But then we decided to go through each of these quadrants, so to speak, as a almost like a Wittgenstein exercise of basically having a ladder that then we climb and then we can, can sort of throw, throw out and discard. Okay, so uh, the f first thing I guess we need to mentioned there is this particular case of the shared social sciences by that. So uh, from the 1950s onwards, actually 1948 onwards, Chile had secured the installation of the Economic Commission of Latin America and the Caribbean in Santiago, which, uh, and after that the Flaxo. Chile, Santiago in particular, became quite an important center for social sciences. And actually, uh, a, a peculiar economic tradition arose from that, the dependency theory, and actually, which had actually links to the Allende government through the figure of Pedro Buscovich. Then, of course, and that was in part, actually, interestingly enough, funded by uh, organizations such, such as Ford Foundation. Um, then, in parallel, actually, the Ford Foundation also founded a program of scholarships that started in 1958-59, with the Escuela de Universidad Católica from the Catholic University, which then in the future became what we would call the Chicago Boys. Then, of course, there was a, a massive break in 1973, and a particular model of what the economy was, of development was uh, completely broken, and there was a 
vacated space, an empty space, through which uh, with people didn't really, uh, there was a space for a public debate that wasn't really filled, so to speak, because an earlier generation of experts had been discredited and also had been repressed, had been uh, went away, etc. Um, so in that space, where, say, in other parts of the world, the history of think tanks says that in, in the 1970s, the right-wing think tanks uh, became more central. In Chile, the case is different because the uh, uh, because they they had basically because the monetaries had control of the uh, had control of the universities, had control of the state apparatus, and discarding a few initial uh, discrepancies with the regime and uh, uh, some dif ideological differences with between say Guzman Rodriguez. After that, they became more or less hegemonic. So there was a space, so to speak, that in which they could implement reforms, whether one agrees or not on, on the complicity at the level of human rights violations, at the level of the democratic break. They are playing in that sense in an, in an open field. In that sense, the complicity uh, is linked also to the yeah, to direct relationship with the uh, with the social polit with the program of structural reforms and social policies of the dictatorship at the time, uh, there of course the cases are paradigm paradigmatic. Pichi, Lavin, Jose Piñera, etc. What happened in the uh, uh, with the pensions reform, for instance? What happened with the reform of the of uh, health insurance? Um, there's uh, quite a bit of work there, uh, for instance, by Osandon on the role of economists in justifying and thinking of a, uh, of, uh, of a particular model and, set, uh, and theory to understand the, econ the economy that was applied in Chile in a moment in which there was no public debate and there was no, uh, the, there, were no there was no one basically to, dis uh, to, to discuss them. Actually, interestingly enough, the first uh, public, um, the first public, like, indexes of public debate that happened in Chile was in 1979 by what then was called the CIEPLAN, which basically came out of a group of academics that went out of the Universidad Católica and founded this internet, this center that received the national funding from m mostly from German, Swedish, Canadian uh, foundations. And the criticism to the regime was strictly tactical. That was, basic, that was the reason why I guess, in, to an extent, they were allowed to speak. That's an interesting story of the, yeah, of the rise of the, of the structuration of what later became called the Technopoles, which are the, uh, the establishment of a, a, a network of political elites and, politi and political debate in the guise of, social, uh, of the social sciences. That's a very interesting story that has been covered as well by uh, Jeffrey Perrier has a very interesting book on the, uh, he used to be the head, uh, local head of the Fourth Foundation so they founded both sides, in, interestingly enough. Okay, so, and uh, then we will move on to what is more properly uh, Tomás Unduraga's work, particularly on the rise of SEP, which is the uh, response of the, they were funded by the uh, Grupo Mate at that time. Um, very big uh, businessman in Chile, and uh, well, as well as the um, some of the work of uh, Manuel Garate on the role of uh, of Revista Hoy, for, is, for instance, in 
uh, disseminating some of the discourse on uh, the discourse on the economy that uh, people in the re uh, that that the that had become sort of more or less hegemonic because of the lack of uh, uh, public debates. A public, I mean, the existence of public, public uh, strange public debate at a moment of dictatorship. Something similar as well happened with political science that we could talk about later in the Q and A if you if you wish. So uh, the issue then, coming back to the categories that we were talking about initially, so that what are the crimes uh, that you're you're accusing them of being accomplice of? So that one thing is, of course, the violation of human rights. Uh, which some people justify, for instance, uh, Guzman, which claimed that up until a certain point in the 70s, the Chile was in a state of civil war, so human rights violations were justified. Uh, then another thing, of course, is the democratic the break of Kudeta itself, and the third one is, of course, the uh, the social, the economic and political model. Okay, there there things become complicated, of course, because then, for instance. Uh, being an active accomplice in one, say in the installation of the economic political model, as the Escuela de Economía of the University Católica and most of its members were, means, uh, uh, okay, no, I'm <laughs> about to finish, <laughs> um, means a certain passive, uh, being a, an accomplice passively at least with two other crimes, so to speak. And then, of course, we won't go there because it's based on the only the dictatorship. But maybe there's, there are accomplices of the transition as well. Which, interestingly enough, in the, in the narrative that you find in the literature, you find, it in, uh, you find that generally the heroes of the, uh, of the Chilean transition are the Cieplans, are the, uh, the think that the, the Sur, the, the Tironis of the world, so to speak, that uh, managed to negotiate a way out of the dictatorship, but at the same time meant, uh, yeah, uh, uh, taking a lot of things for granted, not really touching them. Um, and it's very easy, that's another thing about being an accomplice, because going back to the parallel with the, with the Vichy Republic, the issue there is that whatever you do, whether you do or you don't, unless you're completely outside the system, you're an accomplice some way or other, if you're playing the game. And the, another, the other thing is that, with, unlike the Vichy Republic, the end of the uh, dictatorship was not, was not abrupt. So yeah, uh, I'm really happy to receive any feedback on how to think accomplice, intellectual accomplice of the internship. Thanks. Uh, well, my approach is quite different to the to the last presentation. Uh, actually, it's based on uh, ethnographic work, and uh, and uh, well, in this presentation, I would like to identify and analyze the problem of mining in the context of the Atacama uh, Desert in Chile and how this overpowers and high community uses of water resources. Second, I would like to gain in the understanding of the role of water in the village of Toconao, that is the, the, my case that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, and how water and, um, and the development of the community are co-evolving. And finally, I would like to see the linkages between people water use in relation to, mine, uh, to mining project and the impact that it may have uh, on community autonomy. So mining companies based on the current Chilean legislation have been constantly violated the human rights of indigenous community. Not only with the extraction of the, their resources, as well as with the extraction of their decision-making processes. So 
I would like to, to start, I don't know if you can see, I would like to start and finish actually my, my presentation with a quote of uh, Mr. Stella, Miss, Miss Stella. <laughs> well, she's a, a lovely lady in her, in her 80s, and she was my neighbor when I was living in, in the village uh, in 2015. Estela was one of the women that formed part of the Water Association, uh, which built the irrigation canal it, uh, of the village in the 60s to bring more water to the community. So they had to build canals, bring the water from different ravines, for different mountains, because at that time the village was growing, they, um, and the water was not enough for, for everyone. So they, they had to, to provide irrigation to, to all people in the community, but at the same time they had to decide which land or which sector they had to abandon in order to, uh, uh, to, to, to sustain the majority of the village. So it was kind of a natural process within the community uh, where everyone was taking participation on their own decision. Estela said to me in one of our conversations, we used to have breakfast sometime and, and, and afternoon tea, and she said to me, like, even in the middle of the desert, uh, for many people, water means life, but at the same time, it means faith, neighborhood, and sometimes it means conflict. So especially now, when uh, neoliberal dynamics regarding to water can contribute to redefining local ideas about <coughs> development, increasing local division, and generating vulnerability within indigenous communities located in the northern Chile. So, uh, the idea of this map, I don't know if you can see it well, uh, but by the idea of this map is to demonstrate how mining sector is taking over the control of the land. The Constitution of Chile says that the land is a, is a market good, which means that uh, uh, there are claims on the land, and, and the claims of the land are separated from the claims of the resources such as uh, water or mineral. Therefore, the current uh, constitution uh, enacted in 1980 by Augusto Pinochet dictatorship represents the core of the neoliberal institutional framework currently shaping the, the Chilean state. So the mining boom that started in the 80s with the dictator uh, and that continued with the establishment of the mining code accelerated uh, this activity with, uh, with a high social, cultural, and, and environmental consequences for the local, mostly indigenous community. And why? Because one of the principal mechanisms of the law is to give right to companies to access, explore, and extract resources from the land, independently of whom the land belongs to. So the mining company does not necessarily have to be the owner of the land, uh, either the, to the water that they use. So the blue areas that you can see in the map are all the rights that mining concession for, explo uh, for exploration, ha uh, expo exploitation have for extracting minerals. Uh, and the red one are the, uh, the, the right for exploration. So uh, everyone can apply for, for, for those uh, rights. They, they, they can see whatever uh, what material is in there. They can take the water uh, as well without any concern. So they can decide <coughs> if they want to try or not. So this region, Antofagasta region, is to put in a... In a, in a in a similar situation, is almost the same side of, of England, 130,000 uh, square kilometers. So all of the all all 70% uh, of that area is covered by mining, 
uh, either for exploration or with extraction. So the main resources of the region are copper, lithium, and uh, salt petrol, represented in different color in the, in, the, in, the, in the map. But one of the biggest companies that is active in the area is called Sokimich, and I will uh, focus in that, in, in that company where here in the, in the, in the there is located the, the main uh, lithium produce, uh, production in, in, that, in the Sala de Atacama. So uh, this form of extracting natural resources in Chile take away the control and autonomy of community to take decision in relation to their resources, and hence it threatens the very practices that community developed in relation to water that allow them to survive and flourish in the Atacama Desert. So the desert and the mining sector have a huge economical importance regionally, nationally, and internationally as the numbers on the side shows. On the other hand, it's a place of huge inequality where indigenous communities live and constitute the purest uh, people of the country. So now I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do a zoom into the area of my case study, the village of Toconao, that is here. And uh, what the concession map shows is how the community uh, location is not taken into account, in, into account at all. And, uh, and they have to live with those pressure uh, of the mining company to extract resources. Uh, so the village is part of one of the concessions of the company. So the blue rectangle are concessions for extracting material and the, the green one or the yellow one is concession for exploration. So the indigenous community is inside of, of one concession. Uh, this community is located 33 kilometers southeast of San Pedro Atacama, a very well-known touristic uh, town. And I'm, I'm saying indigenous community because it was declared as one in, in, in August the 12th in 1995, where 76% of its population declared themselves as indigenous. So for the indigenous community in the northern Chile, the right to water has been a constant struggle since Pinochet dictatorship to this day. So this is because the economic vision of the resources driven by the Chilean neoliberal system conflict and clash with the basic vision of water as a universal right for all human beings. So the Chilean institutional law, especially the article number nine, recognizes the indigenous community in four fundamental aspects. First, as a group of people that belongs to the same ethnic group. Second, inhabitants come from the same family tree. Three, the community recognizes traditional leadership. And finally, those people come from the same historic town and or they have uh, or they uh, or have uh, ancestral land in common. Therefore, this law recognizes uh, the community as a collective unit. So in contrast to this one, the, code, the water code from 1981 Establish that water rights must be individual rights, provide free and perpetual uh, water rights to private, in this case for mining, and declare water as an economic good, separate ownership of water from the land, and finally create two different categories of rights. One that you can keep the water, and another one that you have to, you can use the water and then return it to the river. This law uh, also establish a uniform approach for allocating water for the entire country, which does not consider a, loc a local geographic, economic, or, or cultural context. So despite this dilemma, indigenous law allowed community to own their own water as a collective bodies, thus recognizing collective water rights. 
So since the water causes effect, the water resources have been managed by the market, giving the state little capacity to act. So there are about 600 people living in Toconao at the moment, uh, of which half are working in agriculture, and the other half is working in mining sector, services, and craft sector. And the main potable water uh, supplies property of the community. So that is coming from the Silapeti River, so this one. This one. So currently, the main threat for the community in terms of water is not only the reduction of its availability of use, but a fundamental change in the hydro, uh, hydrological cycle and the availability of groundwater due to mining activity. So, uh, as I said, uh, the mining company was had the, con uh, the concession for all the rectangles that I showed before. It's called Sokimich or Sociedad Química Minera. And it's currently Chile's biggest lithium producer and has been working in the area for almost 50 years. They produce a fifth of the world lithium production. In 1971, Sokimich is nationalized. And during the dictatorship, it was uh, uh, in 1983, started the process of privatization. Here you can see in the timeline how the company has been growing in the last 30 years. So the mining company uh, was led by Julio Punceleru, the son-in-law of the former dictator Pinochet since the late 80s. 80s. And as the figure shows, it's embedded in a network of almost all Chilean political parties, the inner circle, and the key people and organizations that support them, which provide the company with a strong power and facility to access resources. Julio Punceleru quit his role as a chairman in 2015 due an investigation into the company about tax evasion and illegal funding of political parties, but not for human rights. Only 10 years ago, Sokinich started to create relationships with the people within the area, often through uh, corporate social responsibility program, which I will explain later. Uh, but before they were extracting material without relationship to people, they only told them that they will create jobs and opportunity, but many people, obviously, uh, they were not skilled enough. Uh, and so the perception existed that if you work in the mining, you, you were well off and you have more opportunity to, than, than others. So now I come back. I, I would like to, to go to my second part of my presentation that is in relation to, to getting in deep understanding of the role of water in the village of Toconao and how people there manage it for different purposes and how water uh, uh, and the development of the community are co-evolving. So hence, uh, taking the broader legal and economic situation into account, uh, as I said before, I did an ethnographic fieldwork in a more specialized and personalized manner to better understand the relationship between people, water, and mining. So it's worth keeping in mind that apart from the, the old conflict that I was talking about in relation to water rights and, uh, and, and land, uh, uh, Toconao is a place where people have been living there for more than 10,000 years. So they have survived in this desert precisely because they know how to to manage scarce water resources. Despite being in the dry desert of the world, they have the capacity to live in it, to keep it uh, green and still alive. So the drawing on the left shows that water came from the mountain and is going through the middle of the town and became here, and became a, a structuring element for the town. So, so much the organization of the town is built around water. 
In the recent years, political ecology has made a significant progress in, be in better understanding of the role of power relation in shaping different dimensions of water resources. And that has probably been uh, traded from predominant technical perspective. So based on my observation and conversation with the inhabitants of the town during my fieldwork and their everyday practices, I got the opportunity to see their collective understanding of the space and water management. I use mapping as a strategic tool of visual communication of the local needs and possible solutions which emerge from the participants that create the map. In my case, maps were also used to discuss a strategy of resistance to confront the scarcity and power imbalance within the community and between the community and the mining sector. So the map is clearly not only a technical tool, and so I aim to incorporate verbal action through history. This action relates to the daily life in the village, which is linked to a spatial, so spatial form and environment, and environment. So therefore, the, the history of people about their use of space and water express and reinforce their culture and tradition. So the reason for working uh, with this group of people was to uncover the history of their use of water over different time scale and the experience of doing agriculture. So an underlying objective of, as well was to get an understanding of power dynamic around water, which can be manifested in the use of irrigation canals and other day-to-day -day practices related to water. Uh, well, I, I don't have much time, uh, so I'm gonna, so um, what, I, what I wanted to do is understand how the irrigation system were, was, was, um, uh, which was changed uh, through the impact of mining company, especially through the corporate social responsibility program. So the people there, they use an ancestral technique of irrigation, but the, mi the mining, through uh, uh, an initiative within the social development component, they created a project called Atacama, Atacama Tierra Fertile, which uh, they promote uh, a, a, a specific kind of irrigation that is a drop, si a drop system, and they uh, introduce a new kind of uh, product. In this case, uh, the project, uh, the aim is to produce wine in the middle of the desert, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So, as you can see, well, this is the difference. This is the traditional way of agriculture, and now it's changing in kind of more mono, uh, uh, mono production of, uh, of, of grape. So, I would like to, to come back to my history of Estela, my neighbor. She had two, two daughters, uh, Betty on the right, and uh, uh, Aurelia on the left. So Estela gave, the, uh, gave them the land, so they separated the land, and they have, everyone they have a special uh, piece of land. Betty, she kept the, um, uh, the traditional way of irrigation. On the other, on the other hand, Aurelia changed for the, for, the, for the new system that is at the top that you can see. Uh, at the moment, Aurelia actually hasn't had any, any production of grape. Uh, as you can see, the land is every day is getting dry and dry. Uh, and, and actually, she needs more, uh, more water to, to, to try to produce something. So uh, I want to finish saying that 
I don't want to demonstrate the difference between those kind of programs that one, one is positive, the other one not. Uh, I don't want to get in that discussion. What I want to show is that this type of program, the, the coming from the, from the mining company, especially through the corporate social responsibility, uh, change the practices in the village and change the way of decision making. So uh, uh, I want to put emphasis that uh, the, the miners, they're not just uh, in relation to the destruction of the res natural resources, but they're taking control of the decision because the, the, the corporate social responsibility is working with community leader, is working with, with key people then within the community. So it has been shown that many times that processes related to mining, water use, and changes in agricultural activity have transformed local way of living, as well as local procedure and norms that explain the behavior in the inhabitant uh, in the living space. So communities are faced uh, with the changes or challenges of being rendered invisible by the model of mining development. So I argue that it's necessary to show that their way of life and way of managing water that require more attention and more protection, particularly given in an underlying existence for, for, for many years in, the, in, the, in this desert. So in the end, the relation between community development, mining, and water are far more complex, and there is need for a more nuanced and more in-deep understanding of the scale, direct and direct impact of extractive activity. So that's it. Thanks. Thank you very much for this fascinating presentation. I will 